This is a Vault Studios production. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in their field and do not reflect the opinions or views of Vault Studios or Tegna. Additionally, all suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, and any and all crimes are alleged until a court finds otherwise. This is Anything You Say, an inside look at the tactics the experts use to get a suspect talking. I know, I know you want to tell us. I, I, can, I can see it in your face. So few people will believe that a person would confess to something they didn't do, especially when the stakes are pretty high. You do have a right to remain silent. In June 1994, Fred Paul Laster disappeared without a trace. The 16-year-old from Uly, Florida, that's just north of Jacksonville, was last seen with a family friend. His name is Ronald Hyde. Fred, or Freddie, was known to spend time with the older man, but nothing ever came of the search or the investigation. In fact, although he was mentioned in the report, Ronald Hyde was never interviewed by police, although Freddie's family did have their suspicions. And over the years, Ronald Hyde, he continued to live his life, neither a suspect or even a person of interest in the case. But in 2005, a break in the case, a torso that had been discovered about a year after the teen's disappearance, it was finally identified as Freddie Laster. The body, or what was left of it, was found behind a dumpster at a gas station in Lake City, which is an hour west of Jacksonville. The hands, legs, and head, they had all been removed. It appeared the body had also been washed. And with the identification of Freddie Laster's body, investigators had new momentum and good reason to reopen the case and start looking at possible suspects again. But it would take another 12 years for them to finally get to Ronald Hyde. And on March 7th, 2017, Hyde, now a middle-aged man with dark brown hair and glasses, is led into an interview room at the Columbia County Sheriff's Department in Lake City, Florida. I know, we probably caught you off guard sorry. this morning. Um, I'm so sorry. Yes, yes. Well, at least you work at the DOC, though, so you know pretty much kind of the, the, the drill and everything. Hyde sits on the edge of a couch wearing a striped golf shirt, khaki pants, and loafers. Detective Jimmy Watson, with the Columbia County Sheriff's Department, sits in a chair to the side of the couch, a few feet away from Hyde. The female voice on the tape is an FBI agent. She's opposite Hyde, five or six feet away. It's clear this room isn't where Ronald Hyde expected to be this morning. Yeah, definitely. I'm so sorry about I'm, that. I'm going to read you your rights because yeah. you're not under arrest or anything, but because they brought you in handcuffs and I'm sure you don't feel like you're free to just get up and walk out right now after all that. Right. So I'm going to read those to you. So okay. Let me grab my card real quick. Um, yeah, the right to remain silent. They read him his rights. Now, I think a person with his background would clearly know something's up. But he doesn't ask, and that's important. That's behavior. It's the absence of behavior that's significant. Um, he, he doesn't ask, what do you mean? Uh, why do I need the rights if I'm not under arrest? He doesn't really 
seem to know. Okay. Would you mind signing for me right there? Sure. Catherine Ramsland is an assistant provost and professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University in Pennsylvania. She's also an author, publishing over 65 books on the topics of criminal justice, forensic psychology, and extreme offenders. Being a behavioral analyst, I'm able to see, see things, see patterns of behavior, um, and see responses without the filter of expectations and uh, theories already formed. So I'm able to give observations that might help either reinforce what a detective already thinks or help them think differently about what they're doing and perhaps look for something else. This week, she'll help us understand exactly how these two investigators go about digging for the truth as they try to solve the decades-old murder of a 16-year-old boy. The first thing she notices is the room. He had a room that was comfortable, um, you know, uh, cushions on the chairs, sort of hard back chairs. Uh, it almost looked like there might have been pictures up on top, but there was a plant. Uh, there was a softening effect in the room that suggested this is used for interviews and not typically for interrogations unless they have gone uh, shifted over to what has been suggested lately is make the interrogation more comfortable because you're less likely to get a false confession um, and more likely to keep that rapport going. Equally important to Ramsland is the position of the investigators in the room. The, the two officers, we have a female FBI agent and a male detective. The male detective's closer. So the female FBI agent is at a distance. She's at a, a distance that wouldn't be effective for anything, not an interview, not anything. She's, she's definitely buffered away. I believe the strategy is probably to see who does he respond to better. And I think it's pretty clear that he responds to the female much more so than the male. The lack of a table in the room between Hyde and the investigators is important to Ramsland giving investigators inside the room and probably watching from outside additional signs to look out for. The feet and legs are actually pretty important because most people who are engaged in in any kind of deceptive behavior are going to be controlling face, shoulders, arms, but they're not as aware of what's going on with their feet. It's all these little details that experts like Catherine Ramsland pay attention to. From the very first minute a person of interest or a suspect enters the room. You can see that immediately when you come into a a situation where you're interviewing or interrogating someone. You'll look at their posture. If there were choices of chairs, which chair did they pick? Um, What are their hands doing? What are their feet doing? Are they sweating? How did they dress for this? Are they well-groomed? Do they seem to have eye contact? So there's all kinds of things you're looking for. Um, Not one behavior is going to indicate that they are deceptive, but a pattern of behaviors uh, will help you to identify areas that you want to probe more. They ask Ronald, or Ronnie, about his background and professional experience. All right, Um, so you're a minister and a psychotherapist. Do those clash sometimes? Not for me. I was just wondering, you know, because, you know, they kind of take different approaches sometimes, I would think, to to helping people. That's why I was asking. Right. So, 
Um, Sounds like you have a lot of good tools in the tool bag to kind of help people with, though, since you can approach people from the, the religious standpoint as well as your master's in education and, and training in psychotherapy, though, for sure. Yes, yes. So if one doesn't work, then... Well, it's... yes. Hyde explains the combination of experience as a minister and a trained psychotherapist has helped him in his job at the DOC, or Department of Corrections, doing one-on-one -on -one therapy sessions with inmates. Yeah, oftentimes people are grasping for uh, straws to try to, to get through, and um, sometimes they do have um, some kind of religious training or, or have people that are assisting them. And he's most comfortable when he's um, instructing. If they ask him a question that he can enlighten them about, like what does a youth minister do? What does a counselor do? What, what was your master's in? Um, when he's able to take that kind of authority, which gives him a sense of control, his face relaxes. He leans forward slightly, still in that, in that tense position, but you can you can tell that's where he's comfortable when he's instructing when he's he feels as if he's answering questions with information that seems safe to him the conversation stays casual meandering between hyde's career and his personal interests you like you're ready to get a golf course i know um yeah i am I, my golf bag's in the car is it oh no I'm kidding <laughs> that's funny I travel with it all the time it's rapport building it was, about a, it was about the amount of time I would think it would take to do that. Rapport building, watching his behaviors, um, seeing if he can figure out why he's there, and seeing which of them he responds to best. Because it's always going to have a good cop, bad cop sense to it, even if they, no one intends to be the bad cop. There, there, it'll be the perception of the suspect, and they'll be able to see who's he responding to better. When they leave the room, I can guarantee you they talked about which which of us do you think is going to get more out of him. Have you tried the new Top Golf? Place? I haven't. No, I haven't. I've heard rave reviews. I've heard it's kind of expensive unless you get a group of people, right. but I've actually heard some really good feedback. Right. That it's a fun place. So you much prefer going out and actually yes doing the eighteen holes. Right. It's good exercise, nice, especially if you're stuck inside at DOC all day. I'm um, sure. Yes. Well, you know, golf is just code for drinking beer and smoking cigars, but <laughs> there is <laughs> At first, you get a sense in this, in this discussion that he's not really sure what he's there for, but, but what, we, what we begin to see are what we call default behaviors. The first thing that an interrogator wants to do is look at what kinds of behaviors does he demonstrate under these conditions uh, when he's nervous, uh, when we ask certain types of questions. Because what you then want to do is look at deviant behaviors when harder questions are asked, and especially deviant, deviating behaviors in clusters. So n n no behavior is a Pinocchio's nose. There isn't one um, that distinctly says this person's lying. Um, but there are red flag behaviors that if you, you see a number of them together is more suggestive of a person being very, very uncomfortable and potentially lying. So that's what you want to do is, is set up a baseline. And, and that was done 
We know the baseline behavior of the suspect uh, is his arms against his body in a protective tightness. Um, he's, he's seated at a weird angle on the couch. It doesn't look comfortable at all. He, he's guarded. Um, his feet do a couple of interesting things. Um, whenever the male detective is talking to him, his feet point to the door. And, and that's suggestive of wanting to get out of, out of the room, go through the door. When the female is talking to him, not so much. Sometimes he pulls his feet under him. Sometimes he points them toward her. Married, any family? Not married, no. Uh, no, no family. I mean, I have some cousins, some distant cousins. Mm -hmm. But all my aunts and uncles are all gone. Significant Deceased. other? Not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Again. <laughs> How about kids? No children. No kids? Never had kids? No. Right. No. No. That's why he has time for all this other stuff. Exactly. And money for it's golf. True. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Very true. All those things go by the wayside quickly. So the default behaviors are this tense, tight, uh, hands together, thumbs brushing one another, uh, sort of twirling or rubbing. That's, he's, he's uncomfortable, but he's keeping himself uh, protected because he doesn't really know what's coming. He doesn't shift or move much. He doesn't gesture. And at one point he leaned, while he's talking to the male detective, he leaned forward and clasped his hands around his knee and, and stayed in that position, even though it looked horribly uncomfortable. <laughs> it was, that's also another form of buffering as you're pulling a leg up, but, there, but that's a sense of keeping something between him and the detective. And, and that happened, and, and then when you see that, like if you went back and looked at a tape of the interrogation, you try to find out what did the detective say at the point at which this, this shifted into that position, and then he shifts back. And then this seemingly casual chat, golf, career, relationships, right. takes a turn. So, um, any questions you have for us? Um, Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> what is this about? So your names come up in a number of different um, like databases and stuff that we check. So we, we wanted to bring you in. We figured you could help us out, um, kind of maybe walk us through some stuff. So, um, like she said, she's she works with the FBI, and I'm a task force officer with them. Um, and we investigate, like, um, mostly internet crimes against children and stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? Or are you familiar? Okay. So people talking to kids on the internet or people downloading images <laughs> they shouldn't, things like that. Um, and like I said, your name's popped up in a couple of databases. Not anything really, like, overly, overly crazy, you know, nothing mm -hmm. like that. But because your name keeps coming up and it's one of those things where... Obviously, they do a lot of intel and a lot of stuff out there. Mm -hmm. So we just wanted to kind of get an idea from you, like there's something we need to be concerned about, there's something we need to talk to you about, or, you know, where we needed to go from here. So, um, so first of all, have you ever seen, are you you're aware of what child pornography is? Okay. I've heard of it, sure. Okay. All right. Have you ever, you haven't ever seen any or anything, got any by accident or anything like that? 
like on the internet or anything? Or do you use the internet? I should probably back up and ask you sure. that. Sure, sure, I use the internet. Go ahead. You've, so you've got a cell phone? And you have, do you have a computer in your house? I do, okay. but I, I don't have internet. Okay, so you don't currently don't get internet to your house. So what kinds of things do you use the computer in your house for? Collect dust. It seems like they've got something on Hyde that could warrant bringing him in for questioning. But the conversation circles back to Hyde's past life, where he's lived, roommates. Uh, prior to 10 years, he lived with you before that? Um, uh, a buddy of mine. Um, was in the Coast Guard and uh, okay. just rented a room while he was in the station in the area. Do you mind giving me his name or...? Um, yes. I'm not going to necessarily <laughs> go and ask him. I'm just, but I might, I might check him against our database just to make sure his name doesn't pop up, just to be safe. Yeah. Um, oh. Travis J. Laster, and it's L-A-S-T-E-R. Okay. And how do you know him? Travis Laster. You might recognize that last name. It's the same last name of the 16-year-old boy who vanished in 1994, the one Ronald Hyde used to spend time with. But at this point, no one's mentioned the teenager's name, only Travis Laster, his older brother, the one Hyde used to live with, the one he calls a buddy. And how do you know him? Is he through through work or DOC contact or something else? No, actually, I, I met him uh, years ago in church. Uh, okay. Up in Bewley area. So you met Travis at that church. Travis is a good guy, no problems, no issues. Right. Known him for a long time? Yes. Okay. And then... After a long pause in the conversation, Hyde seems to want to make something clear. Um, let's see. So child porn does not do it for me. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm if, getting from if, talking to you if, so far. If, if, if I come across something, I mean, quite frankly, I, I don't recall coming across anything. Had I done something like that, I would have clicked off immediately. because it's so just it wouldn't done, be it's something you would stay with or anything like that? No, no not wouldn't be anything that would still be on, I guess, your phone because you don't really have a working computer. So we have um, the suspect did several deflections, and then you start looking for patterns, not just what happened at that segment of the questioning, but does it happen again and again and again because you're looking for patterns of behavior. People typically do things out of habit things that they're used to. They have a limited repertoire of behaviors. And in this case, you can see a number of those being repeated. It seems like they've moved past the everyday, kind of get-to-know-you phase. The detective then brings up another aspect of Hyde's life that they've learned about. Any nudity stuff? Any um, nudist? Um, naturist, anything like that? Is that something you would look up or anything? Yes. Okay. I am a member of the American Association of Nude Recreation. Are you really? I didn't know they had an association. Yes, sir. When he was talking about, well, for example, they asked him about the, his beliefs about being a nudist and a, you know, uh, going to clubs and 
And the ones that he liked are the ones with families. So that's concerning um, because they have kids. Is it possible then maybe you came across pictures of kids? It, like, of course. We can, do they have a website? Anner does have a website, yes. Okay. Um, and there are other websites that <clears throat> have naturist videos. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. And of course, it does include children. Okay. Nude children. Okay. But they're not. They're not. There's no sexual. Okay. Nobody's posed in a sexual position. Nobody. I mean, it's. It's just children swimming or with their families or playing. Okay. So nothing it's a, like it's a nothing sexualized about it. No, just people no. basically recreation. They just happen right. to be nude. Another pause, break in the conversation, and again, Hyde wants to make something clear. I'm not interested in child pornography. Okay. I'm I'm not saying you are. And so even if there was something that was... I, I don't recall, actually, that there was anything that was advertised. I mean, you know, child sex? Okay. No, that's not my thing. Okay. Um, had I seen something like that, more than likely I would have recorded it. Definitely. Detective Watson leaves the room along the way. More than an hour into the interview, he says he's running some checks on what they've talked about. More than 30 minutes later, he returns. And for the second time, the last name Laster comes up. But it's not the roommate, Travis Laster, this time. Yeah, we're going to run some database searches just to see what we come up with. Mm-hmm. And um, I ran your name and I ran Travis's name just to see if anything came up. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anything on Travis, but um, do you know a Fred Laster? His brother. Okay. His name came up. And then it had your name in the report for him being missing. Right. So there's not a whole lot to that report. Um, did um, they had in there that um, the girl that filed the report said you picked him up from the house, and then they, I didn't see where anybody talked to you. Did anybody ever talk to you about that, or do you remember anybody? Police? Yeah. No. The mention of Fred Laster's name doesn't seem to change Hyde's demeanor. He's still propped on the edge of the couch, answering questions. But you can sense a new tension in the room, a missing teenager from decades ago. Questions about how Hyde knew him. You know about him being missing? Because apparently he's still listed as missing. Right. Okay. So, well, I guess, first of all, do you know where to find him? No. Okay. Um, so, okay, well, tell me, like I said, the report says you picked him up and then he went missing. Do you know, like, what happened to him or where he went or anything? No, I was taking him back home. Okay. He, it was, I guess it was his sister that made the report. And so I was just taking him back home. He didn't want to go back home. (laughs) Okay. Where did you pick him up from? the sister's apartment. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, um, so you picked him up from Dawn? the sister's apartment. 
Right. Okay. So you picked him up from there, and you were taking him home, like where home? Um, th- they lived up in Yulee. Okay. He lived with his grandparents. So you picked him up, and he didn't want to go home. So right. did you drop him off at the house anyway, or what happened? No, I didn't drop him off at all. That's when he became missing. He uh, he pulled the he grabbed the steering wheel and pulled the the car over off the road to the side of the road. Okay. And uh, got out of the car and ran. Actually, ran across the the, the roads, a two lane. Uh, highway A1A there. Mm-hmm. There was a pickup truck, um, kind of like a flatbed pickup truck that stopped. Flatbed pickup? Right. When uh, he was talking about the night the, the boy disappeared, and he said he let the kid off at night on a highway and watched him get into a flatbed truck and he didn't report it. He's a minister. Why would he think that was okay? Why wouldn't he be concerned? And somehow he immediately got a ride in the middle of the night? I mean, that doesn't, that makes no sense. He didn't call anybody the next day to see, hey, just want to make sure he's okay because I saw him get picked up. He didn't tell anybody this. He's a minister and a counselor, a caretaker, and he doesn't do anything to make sure this this boy has returned safely. That is glaring to me. I mean, all I, saw, I just could see the lights, you know, in the rearview mirror. Uh, right. They, they were coming from Nassau County and came um, and were going into Jacksonville, and I saw I saw them stop, and I assumed that they picked him up. Okay. I mean, I didn't actually see that. All I saw was the, the the truck coming past me, and about where he was, they they stopped and then and then went on, and then I did I didn't see him anymore. So I just okay. assumed that they picked him up. And then that was the last time I saw him. Have you heard from him or anything like that, or no. Finally, after almost two hours, they drop the first bombshell. So I'm going to tell you this, and I just want you to understand, we've identified the body of Fred Laster. Oh. Yes, sir. Um, and so we do know where his body was found at, going back oh to God. that time frame. Okay. So, again, that's one of the reasons I'm asking these questions, because I'm trying to see if you know anything about that or not. Right, no, where was he found? He was found over in Columbia County, over by Lake City. Wow. Like, what? This is a kid who you knew, that you said were friends, who stayed overnight in your house that you later said, admitted to. And no reaction to him being found dead, dismembered and dumped behind a dumpster? Wow, that the absence of behavior speaks volumes. Were you hoping he was going to come back one day or something? Well, yeah. I mean, okay. Okay. Then, the next bombshell, the real reason why Ronnie Hyde is sitting in this room. Along with his body, um, we found a lot of items of evidence as well. And those items of evidence have been tested. 
over the course of many years, 23 years. And we were able to recover fingerprints and DNA from that evidence. Now, I will tell you that we were able to get a uh, sample of your DNA mm -hmm. several months ago, and your DNA matches the DNA from that crime scene. Okay. So, what I'm here to tell you today is I know how Fred Paul Astor got in a dumpster in Lake City. Okay. And I know who put him there. And I know that was that person was you. And I will tell you that I have plenty of evidence to back that up, <laughs> including your car mm -hmm. backed up to that dumpster. Mm -hmm. And all the DNA evidence, the fingerprint evidence, the stuff that was left in there that was thrown away with that body. I know all those things. He never presses, and it's his right to, to ask, what do you mean? What is the FBI doing in this? Why are you here? He, he, he puts those questions out almost like he know, he's beginning to realize he needs to take charge, but then, he, then he, when they don't, you know, they basically answer in the most vague of terms, he doesn't press. He doesn't insist on getting details. And this is, this is uh, something all the way across the five hours. It's clear that he listens, but he doesn't ask questions when he should be asking questions. What I'm trying to determine is what happened in between then, between you picking him up and his body being in that dumpster. You're telling me your DNA is on the evidence at the crime scene, but right. you don't know how it got there. I was with him. Yeah, I understand that. And if that were just the case, you know, I would take that into account. But again, there's a lot of evidence that was left at that crime scene. There's stuff from your house that matches items from your house that was left at that crime scene. So that's what I'm trying to tell you. He never asked what, what evidence do you have? Who, who wouldn't ask that? Uh, when they say we have items from your home, he never <laughs> like what? he just says, "Well, that's not possible." We'll find out what they are. He never asks what they are. To me, that that raised a huge red flag because that suggested he already knew. He didn't need to ask the question. Just the way that body was left, the what what was done with that body and where it was left in that, in that dumpster, those things are hard to understand. And that's why I'm trying to get some explanation from you. The last time I saw Fred was that evening. The last I time you hurt, saw Fred. I did not hurt that boy. The last time you saw Fred right. was when you were pushing, trying to push his body into the dumpster. No, no, no. And then it fell down and then you dragged it behind the dumpster. No, sir. But that's what I'm telling you is I that all the evidence says that, all the evidence points at you. You understand that? There's evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald killed President Kennedy, but that don't make it We're true. We're not talking about the Kennedy assassination. No. We're talking about you We're talking about putting a 16-year-old boy in a dumpster. No, sir. That wasn't me. So, but it was. And again, you can try to say, oh, it wasn't me. But I've got everything that says it was. Talk us, talk us, talk us through it. Help us understand your perspective on that. My perspective is that I was taking Fred home, mm -hmm. and he jumped out of the car. Okay. And that's the last time that I saw him. So I wasn't the last person to see him alive. 
Ronnie Hyde sticks to his story. Fred Laster got out of his car and he never saw him again. But the interview continues. There's two things juries love the most, eyewitness testimony and a confession. So they know that no matter how strong their physical evidence, if they get a confession, they are, they'll are they nail it. These juries go, will go for that even without physical evidence. They will go for that because so few people can will believe that a person would confess to something they didn't do, especially when the stakes are pretty high. So even though that's not true from our research, uh, juries don't know that. So it, it's in their interest to get him to confess, not just confess, they're looking for things that they haven't yet found. They want body parts. So if he confesses, the likelihood is he'll also show them where the rest of this is. Have you heard about the missing person that was found in 1994 in Lake City? No. So you've never heard anything about a body being recovered from a dumpster in Lake City? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was a torso, which you know, because you put it there. So again, one of the other things I want you to tell me today is where to find the rest of this boy so that we can put him together for his family. Officer, I have no idea. Okay. Um, because if I can get his family, the rest of his remains, I think that would be very, very important to them. No, I think they would be very grateful for that. I not agree with you, but I have no idea. So, I didn't even know that that's where he was. Mm-hmm. Finally, without a confession, without Hyde changing his story about that black pickup, Watson brings up the idea of a polygraph test. Hyde seems to hesitate. It's just a, a lot to, uh, I thought I was being stopped because I ran through a stop sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite shocking. Yes, sir. Uh, and I'm a trained therapist. Yes, sir. You understand? Yes, sir. And so uh, we don't usually reveal our I understand that. thinking and mm-hmm. our feelings, uh, but I am quite shocked to hear that. Perhaps I should uh, consult an attorney okay. protect my rights. You said perhaps, or at this time, are you expressing that you want an attorney present? Yes, sir. Okay. It's not what these investigators want to hear. And over the next several hours, despite the request for an attorney, Hyde keeps talking to the FBI agent without Watson in the room. The discussion is personal, probing, intense. But despite the lengthy conversation between the two, Ronald Hyde is taken into custody that day without a confession. Would you like me to explain why you're under arrest? Yes, sir. Yeah, you have a murder warrant for your arrest right now. Remember they spoke with you earlier about that? Yes, sir. All right, let's do this. Ann Schindler is an executive producer and investigative journalist at First Coast News in Jacksonville. Since Ronald Hyde's arrest, she's followed the case closely and carefully analyzed the interview herself, a case that has yet to go to trial. Yeah, it was weird. When we first got tips from law enforcement that there was going to be a big arrest announced, um, all I heard was Lake City and Torso. And literally, I was like Googling Lake City, Torso, Discovery, and found an old story. And uh, so... Shortly before the press conference, we started going through our old 
file video to see if we could find something, you know, a little bit here and there of what that investigation was. Soon after the interview, investigators went to Ronald Hyde's home, a house that has since been destroyed. Despite any signs of new evidence, what they found was shocking. His house was a mess. I mean, his house was just filthy, disgusting. Even the day that they tore it down, I wasn't there, but the reports of it were just, you know, a stench emanating from this demolition because the house was so disgusting. Um, and there was no running water, and apparently he was using his bathtub as a toilet, and um, pretty kind of hoarderish too, I think. There was just a lot of stuff stacked up, and the photos that I saw of it bear that out. In looking into the decades of investigation into Laster's disappearance, what's been done and what's been missed, she's unimpressed with what she's learned. I think that one of the really sad things is just how, um, how unimpressive the initial investigation was. Um, the, you know, the family reported that Ronnie Hyde was the last person to be seen with Fred Laster, and they never even interviewed him, according to their own records. And what it appears from our review of the documents is that the family initially tried to report Fred missing. They were turned away from one law enforcement agency. They went to another law enforcement agency because there were sort of two jurisdictions involved, two adjacent counties. Um, but their, their initial attempt to report him missing, their family member missing, they were kind of said, well, you know, he doesn't really constitute a missing person. Um, and so they were stymied initially, um, but there didn't seem to be a lot of follow-up. And I don't know if that's because, the, you know, you've got an age, a troubled kid maybe, and law enforcement just by its nature thinks perhaps it's a runaway and dismisses it. it seems like, you know, it was a bungled investigation from the start that the connection to this person who is primary in, in Lasseter's life went unconnected, that he wasn't even questioned, seems like a real injustice. Whether or not he's found guilty or not, just in terms of basic detective work, was lackluster. I think it just really points up how vulnerable kids can be. You know, whether or not the criminal, the murder side of this is, is carried through, it seems that this man had a lot of access to a lot of kids because of his position with the church and because of his ability to isolate kids who didn't have a lot of resources. What do you think about this case and the interview with Ronald Hyde? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can visit us on Facebook at Inside the Crime Vault. Anything You Say is a Vault Studios production. You can learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and The Officer's Wife, at vaultstudios.com. Special thanks to Ann Schindler at First Coast News in Jacksonville, Florida, and our expert, Catherine Ramsland, for their help on this week's episode. Vault Studios executive producers are Adam Ostro and Will Johnson. For Vault Studios, I'm Eric Flack. 